Okay, I told my wife I was going to share an illustration this morning as we start off, and I hope, especially ladies, you don't get offended with this illustration, so just take this in jest, okay? Because there are five questions that ladies ask men that, quite frankly, are deadly questions. Number one, what are you thinking? That's scary. Do you love me? Am I too heavy? Do you think she's prettier than me, and what would you do if I died? Those are five questions that ladies ask, our wives sometimes have asked us, and men know that if we respond incorrectly, it could be a divorce or bad life. So let me just help you out. So the first question, what are you thinking? The correct response is, I'm sorry if I've been pensive, dear. I was just reflecting on what a warm, wonderful, caring, thoughtful, intelligent, beautiful woman you are and what a lucky guy I am to have met you. That is, men, the correct (laughs) response (laughs) to do that. Now, the reality is he's probably thinking about sports or what's for dinner. Uh, He's probably not thinking that, but men, just so you know, that's the correct answer. Or what are we going to have for dinner? Or I've heard all this before. Here's another one. Do you love me? Now, the answer is, of course, guys, yes, okay? If you really want to be careful, say, yes, dear, okay? Uh, and I, I'm really talking to Dan here because he's getting married in a few weeks, so, um, so you need to say, yes, dear. Now, the wrong answer if she asks you, do you love me, is, I suppose so. That's a wrong answer, guys. Uh, or it's a wrong answer to say, would it make you feel better if I said yes? That's not a good one. Um, if it says, that depends on what you mean by the word love, that's not good either. Um, or if you say, does it really matter? That's not good either. So just, guys, you know, just say yes, yes, dear. Now, this one, I'm a little scared to give this one because this one is loaded. Do you think I look heavy? Now, the answer is no, of course not, okay? That is always the right answer. Um, should I share this? <laughs> so I was telling my wife these questions driving over here this morning, and uh, I told her about this question. Now, we have one son. He's single, and there's a reason for that, uh, because a girl in high school asked him, do these pants make me look fat? Now, my son, our son, is not necessarily the most sensitive guy in the world, and he said, no, your fat makes you look fat. Now, that is not the right answer, okay? That's why my son is not married. That's why he's still single. That, that's why he lives with computers, okay? <laughs> Don't say that. All right, so if your wife says, do I look too heavy, please, guys, just say, no, you do not. You look beautiful the way you are. Don't say things like, well, I wouldn't call you heavy, but, you know, don't do that, guys, okay? So we won't get into the wrong answers. I think you know what they are. Uh, If your wife's, you know, uh, there's another woman around, and she says, do you think she's prettier than me? Now, again, guys, the right answer is no, you're much prettier than her, okay? That's always the right answer. It's Guys, don't try to say, well, not prettier than her, but you're pretty in a different way. Don't say that. 
Um, and, and don't say, um, don't say to your wife, I don't know how you go about rating things. Kind of help me with the, don't do that either. Uh, and don't say, well, yes, she's prettier than you, but you have a great personality. Don't do that one, okay? So, so those are some bad responses, okay, guys, just telling you that. And then the last one is, what would you do if I died? Now, the correct answer, guys, is, dearest love, in the event of your untimely demise, life would cease to have meaning for me, and I would pre-force hurl myself under the front tires of the first Domino's pizza truck that came my way. That is the way you really need to answer that, okay? Um, so, uh, you know, you definitely don't want to say, well, I would probably find somebody else. You don't want to say that, okay? So, <laughs> so, you know, there are right responses and there are wrong responses, okay? And we've all been guilty, especially men, of giving the wrong responses at times. And, and, you know, we respond to questions, obviously, verbally. We respond to things in life uh, non-verbally, right, by our cues. Our cues throw off all sorts of non-verbal responses. We respond sometimes by lashing out physically. We respond sometimes by holding things in. Uh, so we all have responses. So here's the thing. How do we respond to life because we all encounter a lot of different situations in life and so how do we respond in life because how we respond to things in life will hinder our testimony or it'll help our testimony how we respond to things in life will either draw people to christ or push people away from christ so how do we respond when we go through life? So if you have your Bibles, we're wrapping up 1 Thessalonians. Probably going to be here one more week. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, it's in the New Testament. Again, if you hit 2 Thessalonians, just turn left. Um, and uh, you know this, the drill. If you hit 3 Thessalonians, it's the wrong Bible. Um, so Paul is wrapping up his letter to this church in Thessalonica. It's a healthy church, which a lot of churches were not. Um, so it's a pretty healthy church, but the one thing we know, and we've talked about this several times, is this church is under intense persecution. So a lot of them are losing their jobs, they're losing their livelihoods, they're losing their family relationships. If you're a Jew and you respond to Jesus, you're probably getting kicked out of the synagogue. And so Paul knew the reality is when we're under pressure, our real heart is going to be exposed, right? Who we really are. And how we respond under pressure is going to impact our testimony. So he knew for this church, even though they were a healthy church and doing really pretty good, he knew that their responses under these intense persecutions was really going to impact their testimony. So as Paul is wrapping up his letter, he, starting especially in chapter 4, he starts answering some questions. And then as he gets on the home stretch of finishing his first letter, he gives them some rapid-fire commands that he, he really wants them to know because these responses to life are really going to have an impact on how this church is going to continue to move forward. And so Paul gives us these responses. And the reason he does this is this, that, um, well, there we go. Our responses reflect our attitudes, and our attitudes impact people, right? Our responses reflect our attitudes, and our attitudes impact people. And so Paul is saying, as he's wrapping up, okay, church, 
you're, you, you guys are really doing good. I've been praising you for this, but you guys are in the squeeze, okay? You're being squeezed by the Jewish authorities, by the Roman authorities, and you guys, you know, we're not even there to help you all. You're a young church. You're doing great, but you're a young church, and so you're really in the squeeze, and so your responses to being in the squeeze with all this persecution is going to reflect your attitude, and your attitude is going to impact people. So let me give you three quick commands to make sure you do in life. And this is for us too. They're not, they're not difficult, but let's unpack them. The first one, the healthy attitude, or you might say a healthy response, is to rejoice always. Okay? Or be joyful always. Look at verse 16. Paul says rejoice always or be joyful always. Now, there's an old Chinese proverb that says this. If you want to be happy for one hour, get intoxicated. Now, we don't recommend this. It's a Chinese proverb. If you want to be happy for three days, get married. If you want to be happy for eight days, take your pig and kill it and eat it. If you want to be happy for life, learn how to fish. Okay? Old Chinese proverb. Now, obviously, this doesn't, you know, none, does anybody have pigs? Okay, I, actually eating a pig for eight days would not make me happy. But you get the gist Learn how to deal with life. Learn how to fish. Learn how to deal with life. Now, here Paul gives us this crazy command. Rejoice always. That's just weird. Or be joyful always. Now, is, is Paul, I mean, is this unrealistic? I mean, is Paul asking us to go around with this big plastic grin on our face? I mean, when Paul was getting beaten, and he was, it, it was Paul saying that when he was getting beaten, he was like, hey, hit me, baby, one more time. Is that what he was saying? I don't think so. Okay, I, I mean, uh, it, it's not that, that, that when Paul and Silas were in prison, they were sitting there singing Yiddish folk songs, okay? What does he mean then when he says, uh, rejoice always? How do you do that? Well, here's how this works. In America, we want to tie joy into happiness, and happiness is basically the emotion we feel when circumstances are great, right? So we say that, right? How, how, you know, if you're happy, hey, what you happy about? Hey, I got a lot of money in my bank account. I'm happy, right? Hey, what you happy about? Hey, we're on vacation. That's great. What you happy about? Hey, we just got married, or hey, we just had a baby. We in America tend to hide happiness in with emotions, but joy is different than happiness. The way to be joyful always not sometimes, right? No subverse. It doesn't say rejoice sometimes, right? It says rejoice always. Is we have to divorce our circumstances from our joy. Let me explain. For example, you can rejoice when your bank account is at zero because you know this is all just temporary and you have heaven as your home. So you may be sad, it may be making it tough, but you can reach, there's a joy down in your heart that, hey, this isn't all there is. When you get diagnosed, or if you get diagnosed with a terminal illness, it makes you sad. Obviously, you're going to be leaving friends and families. There's nothing wrong with being sad. But you can rejoice even in the midst of that because you know your home is in heaven. This isn't your final place. So you can rejoice in the midst of that. When, when you have somebody who's not showing you love, you can still be joyful because even though a person may not be showing you love, and that may make you sad, 
You have joy because you know that the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords has shown you love. And you have his love, and he will never take his love from you. And so you can rest. Does that make sense? To be joyful always, you have to separate this from your circumstances. In other words, your joy, it could be at times your circumstances heightens your joy. You know, baby's born, wow, God's the author of life. Thank you, God, for this new life. That heightens your joy. But your joy is not tied into your circumstances. Your joy is disconnected from your circumstances, your joy is much deeper than your circumstances. Because here's one thing I've learned in life. Circumstances change. Right? This week you may have a lot of money in the bank because you got the government's, you know, the government gave back the money you paid them. They just held it for a year and then they gave it back to you. On we're all, I got a refund. Actually, you didn't. It's your money. But anyways, you got your money back. Woo, I feel great. Okay, three weeks later you're broke again. Okay? But you can have joy on either ends of that spectrum if your joy is not based on just your bank account. How do you, let me just show you how Paul did this. Here, here's what he said in Romans. He says, not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Here's why, Paul says, here's why you can have joy even when life is difficult. Because that affliction produces endurance or produces perseverance. In other words, Paul says... Yeah, getting beaten is not fun. I mean, nobody wants to get beaten, for crying out loud. But I can rejoice in that because that just strengthens my faith. That just enables me to keep going for Christ. Here's another one, Colossians. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I'm completed in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. Now, what does he mean by this? This kind of sounds weird. I, the way I take this verse is Paul is like this. I rejoice in, in those sufferings. Am I seeking them out? Obviously not. Nobody wants to be beaten and whipped and shipwrecked and all those things he went through. But by experiencing those things, I think what Paul's saying is, I'm getting a taste of what my Savior experienced. And, and, and by, by, by getting a taste of that, it helps me even identify more with my Savior. And it gives me more of appreciation for the depth of the love that drove him to the cross. So even though I'm getting a beating, that's nothing like getting tied to a cross. That's nothing like getting your, your hands nailed to a cross. That's nothing like enduring the wrath of God. So when I suffer my affliction, it's giving me a taste of that, and by getting a taste of Christ's suffering, I'm able to even experience the love of Christ even more, and, and the grace of Christ even more, and I'm able to, to, to pass that along to you. Here, here's another thing. So when we're going through those things, especially for your faith, and, and if you're suffering for your faith, it gives us just a little bit of a glimpse of what Christ went through. Here's another one. He, God, comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Here, here's the beautiful thing of the church. If I were to sit down and interview everybody in this room, we would all have different experiences of conflict. I know we've had some in this room who have lost a spouse. I know we've had some in this room who have been through the pain of divorce. We may have some in this room who have lost a child. I know some in this room who have probably, you know, have been to war. Some of you have other things. Some of you know the pain of addiction to alcohol. Some of you know the pain of addiction to drugs. In other words, we all have different life experiences. 
And some of you can minister to people better than I can because you can say, I understand that. I've been through the loss of a spouse. But let me share with you how God gave me the strength and enabled me to get through this. And he can do the same for you. I will walk with you through this journey. Some of you can do that with a lot more credibility than I can. And that's what makes the body of Christ beautiful. Some of you can say, I understand the pain of a wayward child. I've walked through it. Let me walk with you through this. Because through my suffering that I've gone through, I'm able to minister to people who are struggling. Does that make sense to you all? We all have different things. And sometimes God lets us go through those times of suffering and God's saying, look, you hold on to me, you keep going, you rejoice in the midst of this, you know that I'm in control, I, your faith is going to be strength, it's going to be pulled, it's going to be stretched, you may think you're going to break, but you're, you're going to hold on, and when you get on the other side, your faith is going to be stronger, and there's somebody down the road a few years from now that you're going to cross paths with is going to experience the same thing you're experiencing today, and you're going to be able to help that person through, just like somebody may have helped you through. And so Paul says, look, to a church that's going through suffering, rejoice always. You know, uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl was a Jew who went through the uh, concentration camps. And he wrote a book on the other side called Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about when he was captured by the Nazis and when they took him to the concentration camp. And... Um, he, they stripped him, of course one of the things they did was strip the prisoners totally of their clothes, very humiliating. And Dr. Frankel is there, they strip him of his clothes and they start cutting away his wedding band. And as they're cutting away his wedding band, as he's standing there, he thought to himself, you can take away my wife, because they had separated him from his wife, you can take away my children, because they had taken his children away, you can strip me of my clothes, you can take away my freedom, but there is one thing no person can ever take away from me, and that is my freedom to choose how I will react to what happens. You can take everything you want away from me, but you cannot take away my freedom to choose how I will react to this. I'm still in control. And that's the same for a Christ follower. You may go through really difficult times. You may lose your money. You may lose your health. You may lose family. And, and all those things, and, and you know, those things may come, but you can still choose to rejoice. Because you know at the end of the day, all this is temporary. Heaven is your home. You are a child of God. You are chosen by God. You are a royal priest of God. You have rewards waiting on you in heaven. Your life has purpose and meaning. You are loved by God. You are a new creation. You are a saint. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can legitimately access the throne of grace. You can legitimately call God your Father. And you know these things. So no matter what happens in this temporary world, those things are true. And rejoice always. Make sense? So Paul says, rejoice always. Why? Because our responses reflect our attitudes, and our attitudes impact people. And here's another attitude. Next thing. Pray continually. Look at the next verse, verse 17. Pray continually. Now, I know that sounds like a crazy 
thing. How, what, what do you mean, Jim? You know, like when I'm driving down on 465, I'm supposed to be closing my eyes and praying? No, I don't think. Please don't close your eyes, okay, while you're driving down 465. I mean, Jim, when I'm walking down the street, am I supposed to be having my head bowed, my eyes closed, and walking to street posts? Now, most people do that anyways because they're looking at their phones now. But no, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Paul is not saying stop everything you do in life and live in a monastery. And that's why he's not he's saying because in 1 Thessalonians and later in 2 Thessalonians, he says, hey, people who are lazy, you need to start working, okay? So his saying is that don't join a monastery and pray every day. That's not what he's saying. He says pray continually. Now that word continually, if it ends in an L-Y, it is, anybody know, an adverb, right? Adverbs tell how, all right? If, if you need help with grammar, my wife's a grammar Nazi, so you can talk to her about that. I say that lovingly, uh, but that's her thing, so she's always correcting me. So sometimes when I get home after church, my wife tells me my bad English for my sermon. But anyways, <laughs> in a loving way, I'm teasing. But she's helped me to understand adverbs. Adverbs tell us how. So he tells us pray how, pray continually. Now that word continually in our English language in the original Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, is the word that Greeks use to describe a hacking cough. Have you ever had that cough <clears throat> and you just, now see, I just did, I cleared my throat, right? You, you get that cough and you're always clearing your throat or it's always like you, you feel that, I got a cough thing. Have you ever had that? You know, it's just like, oh, and somebody's talking to you and you're, you're trying not to cough and it's just driving you insane. It's just that feeling of uh, feeling like, cough. here's what Paul's saying. In other words, your attitude through your life is to be always open and praying and just having that feel. In other words, you, you're, you're at Wendy's and you see people buying things and you just want to say, Lord, I pray for that person that they may come to know Christ. Lord, you know, somebody's talking to you and they're pouring out their heart and you're like, Lord, I pray. And you, get, you just say it in your mind, Lord, I'm praying for so-and-so right now at this very difficult time. Or Lord, I'm praying for wisdom. In fact, there, there was a time Billy Graham was being interviewed by um, uh, King, uh, Larry King. And Larry King brought up this thing about what, what does Paul mean when he talks about pray continually? And Billy Graham said, well, Larry, I'm praying for you right now as I'm talking to you. In other words, I'm talking to you, but in my mind, I'm praying for wisdom. I'm praying for your salvation. I'm praying that God will work. So that's what Paul is saying. He is saying pray for all the time. As you're going through life, as you see things, pray. Look, <laughs> you get up in the morning, you sit down with your cup of coffee. Lord, thank you for a cup of coffee. Lord, thank you for air conditioning. Man, aren't you guys thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. I mean, I'm thankful for that. Lord, thank you for, I'm going to pray in advance for the rain we get today. Thank you for that. In other words, you know, as you're driving down the road, Lord, thank you, I got a car. Hey, Lord, this person over here looks like they're really struggling. I, I, just, I just want to pray for them right now that just that you'll work in that area, however it is. Maybe the Lord says, hey, you need to go talk to them. Okay, do that. Prayer is not telling God what to do. Prayer is not like, I'm going to make God do this. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is aligning your will with God's will. See, when you're praying for the salvation of somebody, certainly God is not willing that anyone should perish, but God doesn't force people to get saved because God's a gentleman. He gives the plea, but they have to respond. But when you pray for a person to be saved, you're aligning your will with God's will. And guess what? That may encourage you to go share the gospel with that person. When you see somebody in need and you pray for them, that's aligning your will with God's will because God has a, a heart for the fatherless and the widows and the orphans. And by you praying for them, God may be saying, you need to go do something. 
Prayer is not making God do things. God's not a cosmic vending machine. Put in a prayer, get out something. That's not how it works. It's about you aligning your will with God and staying on the same wavelength as God. Victor Hugo said this, There are moments when whatever the attitude of the body, the soul is on its knees. That's basically what Paul is saying. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus illustrated this way in Luke chapter 18. He, he told them a parable, disciples, about the need to pray always, need to pray always and not get discouraged. He said there was a judge in one town who didn't fear God or respect man, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. And then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect, those who responded to him, who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay to help them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of God comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus says, keep praying, do not give up. Pray constantly. Pray constantly. Let me give you another one. Look at the next verse. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Tells us to give thanks and everything. Why? Because our responses reflect our attitudes, and our attitudes impact people. So we need our responses. We should be thankful always. Be thankful always. There was a Scottish preacher named um, Alexander Wycliffe, uh, or White, and um, he always had something cheerful to say. And so one day, it was a Sunday, it was cold, it was blustery, it was rainy, and so they all gathered in church, and they wondered, okay, they were kind of whispering like, so what's the minister going to thank God for today? Because this is a nasty day outside. And so Andrew White got up there, and he said, we thank thee, O God, that every day is not like today. Right? There's always something to be thankful for. Now, remember the context. This church... <clears throat> Uh, Thessalonians, they're under intense persecution. Again, they're not the mainstream. This is a very pagan culture. These people are like totally off the, the, the radar here with the, the culture. And, and a lot, they're standing alone. They don't even have the Apostle Paul there to help them. They don't really have a whole lot of support. And yet Paul tells them, give thanks to God in everything. Now, does that mean that they are to be thankful even in the middle of difficult days? Yeah. Does that mean they're to, to be, be thankful even though some of their uh, fellow church members had died and Jesus hadn't come back? Yeah, they should still be thankful. Does that mean that, that uh, they need to give thanks to God to even when they were losing their jobs? Yeah. Give thanks always. And here's why. If you go back to that verse, Paul says, because it is God's will for you. Now, we always talk about God's will. We hit this a couple weeks ago. Here's the second time Paul's used that phrase. In chapter 4, he says, avoid sexual immorality. Why? Because this is God's will. And now he says at the end, give thanks in everything. Why? Because this is God's will. Two things so far that we know that's God's will for our life. Avoid sexual immorality and be thankful all the time. Two things. So if people are like, what's God's will for my life? Well, I can tell you two things. Avoid sexual immorality and be thankful continually. Be thankful always. Again, we can't, you say, how do I do this? Again, it's not based on your circumstances. 
It's based on who you are in Christ and who God is. Don't, don't base it on just your circumstances, because circumstances change. Remember, we're finite. God is infinite. We are not God. We don't know all the answers. We don't know all the reasons. We cannot control life. Only God is infinite. God is in control. And so here's the thing. At the end of the day, even though it may be a tough time, even though the bank account may be down, even though it may be a bad diagnosis medically, even though you may have that wayward child, Paul says, I'm going to challenge you to be thankful because I guarantee you in the midst of that, if you learn to be thankful because there's something in there you can be thankful for, like, God, I'm glad you haven't abandoned me. God, I'm glad that this is all temporary. God, I'm glad you, you know, I, am, I am loved by you. God, I'm glad that you've given me mercy. I thank you that I'm part of the, you know, I'm, I'm chosen. And all those things. Be thankful for those. And you know one thing when you're thankful? It really helps change things. It helps you see things. For example, if I had a handful of sand, and I told you to go find the iron in that sand, you'd be sitting there on your fingers, you couldn't find it. If I gave you a magnet and told you to pass it over that sand, the iron particles would be attracted to that magnet. When you go through life, if you practice being thankful, it's like putting that magnet over life and you start seeing. Remember that old song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And so when we practice thankfulness, we start seeing God is at work. When we're not thankful, we don't see where God's at work. But when we are thankful, we do. And remember what Paul said, and we know that all things work together for the good. To those who love God, that's the, the caveat, works together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So God will work things for the good to those who love him. So those are just three things. That's all we're going to talk about today. And my question is, how is your attitude? So here you have this church under intense persecution. And Paul says, I'm going to give you three quick commands that you need to employ in your life because your attitude is going to reflect your heart and your attitude is going to impact people. And so if you, Church Thessalonica, and if we, Warren Baptist Church, and we individuals want to have the right kind of attitude, then we need to learn to pray continually, rejoice always, and always be thankful. And as you and I can learn to practice that in life, people will see that there's something different. Something different in your life. And you never know that that wayward child may one day sit down and say, Mom, Dad, I need help. You never know when that person who is watching you at work and they're watching you go through some difficult times, but they see a difference in you when they might come up and say, what's the difference? How do you deal with that? How can you be that way? Again, your attitude reflects your heart. Your attitude impacts people. So how is your prayer life? Today when you leave, I'm going to challenge you as you go, maybe out to eat or home, maybe as you see people, just pray for them. I'm going to challenge you just to be thankful as you go throughout the day. Offer up a little prayer when you get home tonight. And throughout the day, make it a habit to just be in that attitude of prayer. And you see things, God, thank you for the beautiful flowers out there. God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for my car. Thank you for gas. 
in the car. Thank you for food on my table today. Thank you for the waitress. And Lord, I want to pray for her that she'll come to know Christ and maybe God will open that door up for you to even share something. Be in that attitude of prayer. Be thankful always. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we get so focused on our circumstances and yet you call us to not focus on the circumstances but to focus on the author of life to focus on who we are in Christ. And so, Father, I pray for the Christ followers in this room and maybe those who are watching on Facebook today that we'll take these three commands and we'll learn to be joyful always because we'll focus on who we are in Christ. That we will be thankful in everything because so much you've given to us, and that Father will pray without ceasing. Lord, help us to have an attitude that people will see a difference in our lives. And God, I pray if there's somebody maybe watching today on YouTube who doesn't know Jesus, none of this really applies to them, because unfortunately they've not experienced the ultimate grace, love, and mercy, but they can today. And I pray if there's somebody who's watching today on Facebook that they'll just say, Lord, I want you as my Savior. I repent. I want to turn away from my sin. And I'm asking you to save my soul and deliver me from my sin. I'm going to put my faith and trust in you alone. And I pray, Lord, maybe somebody today watching this will do that. Lord, I pray at Warren Baptist that you'll just guide us as a church to reach this community for Christ. Help us, Father, just to have an impact. Thank you for the impact we're starting to have. And Father, I pray that we will be a healthy church and a church that makes a difference. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, three challenges today, and I'm going to leave you with that. We're going to end with uh, another.